If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Today I'd like to introduce you to Judy Fasher. Judy's done eventing, show jumping, dressage and now she's an eventing specialist coach and coach educator. Judy teaches from children to mature age riders, so all ages and everything in between. How are you today, Judy? I'm fine, thank you. Great. Judy, we're going to start you off with an inspirational quote or a favourite quote that you'd like to tell us about today. (laughs) I suppose I say most often to my riders, go slowly and be kind. Everything that you need for success is to do with establishing the partnership with the horse. And uh, horses need you to explain to them what it is that you want them to do If you explain to them what you want them to do, more often than not, they will bust themselves to actually please you. Okay, I think that that's well explained to go slowly and be kind. Yeah. Judy, how did you start with horses? What are your first memories? Well, my very first memory was when I was very young. I was about uh, three years old. My mother used to... uh, Follow my father, it was wartime in, in England, and my father was in the Navy. And my mother was a, a bit of a camp follower around the, <laughs> around the ports of England so that she could meet up with him from time to time. And we were living in Troon in Scotland at the time, and I was taken for walks in a pine forest where there happened to be an almost blind, very old pony. And I can still remember the absolute thrill and delight I felt when it lowered its head and sort of sniffed around my hair. And I know that I drove my mother absolutely crazy and wanted her to take me back to see the pony again and again and again. And I'm afraid that was when the passion was born. And unfortunately, for everybody that knows me, it hasn't subsided. (laughs) <laughs> That's a lovely memory, isn't it? I was um, it is. talking to, I think it was Jenny Haynes, and she said she just would go up and just the velvet he knows was just so soft and that was her memory. It wasn't riding as such, but just the memory no. of horses being horses and the interaction that they have with us. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. All right. Then from there, Judy, um, when did you actually start to ride? How did it go from there after? Well, my whole family were not interested in horses or riding at all. I was really uh, the black sheep of the family in having this particular obsession. Fortunately, I had an aunt who was very sympathetic and at the age of seven, she took me to a riding school in Cornwall where I spent the summer holidays riding with her. She she could ride a bit and as I remember a very frightening lady called the Miss Harding and a very fat grey pony called Caroline however I wasn't at all happy with the fact that riding only happened in holidays and so I pestered 
my family to find a local riding school so that I could go at least once a week when I got home. I think this was when I was about seven. Mm -hmm. Anyway, then at eight, I noticed from the bus as I went to school that there was a pony that always seemed to be unattended in a paddock that was comparatively near home. So eventually I got off the bus at that bus stop and went and knocked on the door and asked if anybody ever rode the pony. To my great surprise and delight, I was told that it was a child who was away at boarding school and if I wanted to ride it in between when she came home to school holidays, I was permitted to do so. And the best thing was that on top of that, the father of the family um, said that he went hunting on Wednesdays and would I like to come with him? Well, you can imagine my delight. Wow, wow. I went home and told the family that I'd been invited to hunt with the Cheshire and they, they looked at me with thinly veiled amazement and said, how on earth did I think I was good enough to do that? And I said, well, if Mr Lomax, what if he sees me ride and if he thinks I'm safe enough, would you let me go? And they said, yes, they would. And so off I went. So I spent the next few years taking Wednesdays off school <laughs> <laughs> and writing with the Cheshire Ant, which was the most marvellous experience. And I wasn't very good. I mean, I had lots of close calls, but it led me to be extremely resourceful <laughs> and to learn to be quite good at sort of sorting out my relationships with a, a lot of people who were very much better than me and also were... Uh, very superior about a small girl who thought she could ride, which I certainly <laughs> couldn't, but I, I sort of, I could hang on. That was mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's just an amazing opportunity that, oh, I, I mean, they could have just yeah. said, no, don't come back. How dare you, you know, think that you can knock on our door. They, they could have, yes, they could have right. been anywhere. It, that was just a, a bit of a one in a million opportunity that that of was course. going to work yeah, out. Absolute mm. luck. <laughs> mm, 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 for sure. Now, what happened about the Wednesdays off? The Wednesdays off well, school? Did, I was, did you get I was caught? At day school. I wasn't at yeah. boarding school, yeah. and and I just persuaded my parents. I, I mean, I must have been the most well. My parents both said I was very annoying. My mother <laughs> was much more supportive than my father. My father thought it was a whole heap of nonsense, but my mother could see the passion, mm-hmm. and she respected the passion, so she didn't want to, you know, stop the passion, and so she let me do it. <laughs> wow. And so she just wrote to the school and said that I needed to do this, and so that was what that was what happened. <laughs> However, of course, eventually it came to boarding school. I was sent away to boarding school, and I was extremely unhappy. And then the next thing that happened was that my family decided to migrate to Australia, And we landed in Western Australia. The sort of carrot that was held out to me was that maybe in Australia we would be able to afford for me to have a pony. Mm -hmm. And so very reluctantly and, you know, it was leaving grandparents and all of the tragic things that happen to people when they migrate. And there was no suggestion that we'd ever go back because there was never going to be enough money to do that. How old were you at that stage? How old? I was nearly 12. Okay. Yep, when we came to Australia. And so that was 19... What was the year the Queen was crowned? I think it was 53. Anyway, might have been 54. I'm not, I'm not all that clear on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, uh, we arrived in Western Australia and in a fairly short period of time, fortunately, my father found us a house that, to me, it seemed coming from England, an English 
sort of city life, mm. it seemed to me like absolute heaven because it was a quarter of an acre and it had a shed that I could see immediately could be converted into a stable. <laughs> <laughs> and so I set about uh, saving enough money so that I could buy a horse. Mm. And uh, that was to do with uh, asking for the money rather than the treats. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I saved up 16 pounds, as I remember. And a friend had a horse that she didn't like riding. So eventually, I I bought him and set him up in the back garden and rode every day. And so from 12, I suppose I was about 12 and a half by the time I got him. And Mm -hmm. from 12 to 15 I rode every hour that the sun shone. Yep, yep. <laughs> Not literally, but you know yes. what I mean. <laughs> there was an opportunity to yes. ride. And I kept the horse in the back garden with the help of the local bakery and the local <laughs> vegetable shop who gave me carrots and cutting wild oats along the railway lines of Western Australia, which I was very good at with a sickle and a bag. And the horse looked fantastic. It's great, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very good. Anyway, I had uh, huge opportunities there because there was a small group of us that we were all teenagers and by that time we rode together Mm -hmm. and we rode on a little place called The Green at Claremont and we really learned our skills absolutely by trial and error. But then we were hugely helped by Carl Duranak. Um, oh, wow. Was Another piece of luck. Yeah. Yes, he landed there. And then uh, Franz Marengli used to come over for clinics. And I was lucky enough to be able to go to those clinics. And both of those people were, at that early stage, really exceptional in terms of giving me a whole sort of philosophical basis to riding horses, I suppose, which was different from what I'd had so far. And then, of course, what happened was that the school reported that if I put as much energy into my schoolwork as I did into (laughs) my horses, I might do quite well. And so the horses were sent out to the paddock. And from the ages of, I suppose, from about 16 to 17 and a half, which is when I finished school, I was not permitted to ride at all. Oh, no. So I was a very unhappy child (laughs) for those years. And then, of course, there was the whole business of training and earning a living and all of those things. I went, first of all, to Teachers College, which I did not enjoy, Mm -hmm. but I was actually quite successful as a teacher because I couldn't bear to fail, but I knew that I wasn't going to enjoy being in a classroom with children for five days a week. And so I then decided that journalism was going to offer me more of the sort of life that I wanted to lead. So I got myself a job, first of all, with Channel 7 in Perth, and then with the ABC. Yes, and that was that became my life for a long period of time because I didn't really stop riding again. So there was a huge gap between then and when I married my husband, Michael, which is when I was 35. Mm-hmm. He was a medico who had an interest in horses. And we both decided that uh, what we thought we would like to do for recreational purposes was ride. And, of course, then it became really serious because <laughs> <laughs> I thought Good. time yep. was running out. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. No, there, there is a big gap there. You know, I talk to a lot of people yeah. who, you know, might have gone to uni but not really 
kept going or had a gap year. There's quite a few people had a gap year or finished school and thought I'll have a year off before I actually go to uni or go to college or whatever and that gap year is still going. You know, there's quite a few people like that, but that's a big gap, the one that you had. And so you and your husband started to ride again and then from there you started to coach and then, um, yeah, have become a coach from there. Yeah. Well, yes, my old memories of hunting that went back to my when I was very young, that kept absolutely obsessing me and what I wanted to do was event and I'd always wanted to. I did at the age of 15 announce to my father that I was going to leave school and become a jockey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you can imagine sh- how far that got. I'm sure. But anyway, <laughs> eventing was the next attraction and... Fortunately, my husband was interested in riding too, and so, you know, he has absolutely supported my riding efforts. And uh, so I started getting a lot of lessons, and uh, a lot of people made a huge contribution to my riding, which fortunately allowed me to actually get to the stage where I could event comparatively safely. And, yeah, that has been my absolute fascination and delight. And I've only stopped comparatively recently actually competing. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to manage to do it again. But I'm a little bit busy at the moment because I'm <laughs> chair of EA and that, that's taking quite a lot of energy. I'm sure it would. Sure I'm you. sure it would. <laughs> now, you've got Carl Jurenak and Franz Maringa. Who else yes. has has helped you along the way? Oh, and and you said maybe they were the two that helped you earlier, but what about when you started to ride again? Who who else has helped you there? Oh, Julie Piggott was a huge help to me in the early days in terms of eventing. Yep. She was very very focused in terms of teaching me the skills that I needed to develop. She was excellent, and for a long time. I went to Julie. I've been inspired most particularly, I think George Morris taught me more about coaching than anybody has ever taught me. Mm-hmm. As a show jumping coach, I found him enormously helpful. But uh, I got my first good dressage horse, which was bred by Doug Green years ago. Oh, yes. And the horse was a successful eventer. I made it my business all the way through to go through visiting coaches. I, Christoph Hess was hugely helpful to me in the early days, as was Martin Claver came over in the late 80s and I went to clinics with him whenever he came here. I have always been to overseas coaches whenever I had the opportunity because I feel that, you know, they come with a different perspective and it's... Yeah, it's really, really good to be to watch them and to watch them coach also. It's not just being coached by them, it's watching them coach others. Yes. You learn yes. one heck of a lot. And sometimes as a coach, you know, we, we tend to be, if we're just working on our own faults, we work on our own faults, then we tend to turn around and our faults, we're more aware of them, we teach other people. But if we get a perspective from another coach ourselves, Sometimes it helps us be more aware of just, you know, different faults, different aspects, different ways of explaining things. So, yeah, I can understand. Absolutely. And you do learn so much from the way in which 
they speak to people and the way in which they explain things. And you can be saying the same words over and over again, but there's no point in saying the same words over and over again. They're not producing the result. And what I've found is that watching other coaches coach is hugely informative because you just watch them picking up the things that they might correct and you hear both the exercises they use to do it and the manner in which they relate to their pupils is also informative. So I love learning stuff <laughs> in, in every area of my life where I am interested in things. Journalism's the same. Yes. I read very widely and I love to learn. Mm, mm. Tell me about the horses that you had because you started off with, you know, the horse in the forest and then yeah. uh, you talked about Caroline, I think the pony. And then, oh, that was yeah. the pony in the riding school. And then yeah. Monty was the one that I hunted on. He was yeah. a little sort of Dartmoor, New Forest, little very, very bold little creature who used to charge across paddocks with <laughs> absolute disregard for safety or anything else, except yeah. that he was very, very balanced and there wasn't anything that he couldn't manage. And so that gave me as a, an eight-year-old through to when I was about 10 or 11, I suppose, yeah. real confidence in the fact that I could stick on and I could do stuff. When I came to Australia then, the horse I had was a reject and I've I've had rejects actually, come to think of it, after then I've I've had rejects all my life. (laughs) So the horses horses that other people didn't want or found difficult are the ones that seem to have fallen into my lap, but they've taught me just so much. And so the first sort of comparatively successful horse I had was a little stock horse called Rest Easy. Rest Easy, yep. Rest yep. Easy. Yeah. And I got him through Julie Piggott and he came second. I was determined that I was going to ride Centennial Park before that course actually folded and I was delighted in coming second in an intermediate event in Centennial Park before it eventually Because that was a three-day event, wasn't it? Yeah, it yep, was a three-day. Yep. It was when we yep. did steeplechase yes. and all of the rest of it. And he was a wonderful little horse. Then the first sort of successful dressage horse I had was bred by Doug Green, his Belange Advantage, and he both evented and did really good dressage. He was a sufficiently successful show jumper to keep the fences up, but mm-hmm. he wasn't really very talented in the show jumping area. I have a whole lot of horses after that. I suppose the one that really was the most difficult horse I ever had was a horse called Carbrook Contrast, who I bought from Colleen Brook. And he, I rode him at, well, it was advanced eventing, but it was the then equivalent of three-star, but it wasn't really the equivalent of three-star now. It was less level of technicality. Mm-hmm. But he was a very full-on, very strong, warm blood. But he was absolutely... He was he was magic to steeplechase, <laughs> <laughs> and his dressage was extremely lackluster. Although he was a warm blood, he couldn't settle in the dressage arena. Mm-hmm. And having had one that could settle and always was sort of twenty penalties above the field, I used to end up in the bottom part of the field on carbon contrast. So, <laughs> and one judge once remarked that she was pleased to see that the horse and I had left the arena together. <laughs> But judges were rather more tolerant in those days. I would have been billed off really early now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
But he was a great horse across country, and I rode a lot of events on him. I rode Melbourne and Gawler twice, and of course the events here in uh, New South Wales. And yes, he was a very exciting horse, and he taught me a huge amount. And what do you think your proudest moment's been then? I think my proudest moment has been completing events on that horse because although in terms of competition results, I've done better on other horses, nobody but me knows how hard it was to complete an event on that horse. Okay, yes, yes. (laughs) You know, the results don't show it, but you know what you had to do to make it happen. And I'm I'm enormously proud of how I managed that horse. Okay. All right, now I'm going to ask you to put your take off your riding cap, put on a coach's cap, and just tell me what's a problem that you see often um, with your riders? And I know that you teach from children to seniors or mature age riders, all ages and everything in between. But what's a common problem you see across all ages and talk a little bit about how you go about fixing it? I think the most common problem is where people's expectations exceed their experience and their ability. So the reason that that's such a problem for a coach is that somehow or other you have to persuade them that it's not a safe sport and in order to look after themselves and to make sure they survive to live the next day and to have the next experience, they have to actually be realistic about what they can do and what their horse can do. And in terms of younger people, the little ones are fine because you can control that situation for them. But then the sort of age group from around about 12 to 15 is difficult because the children have expectations of themselves and worse still, sometimes the parents have expectations of the children that are not all that realistic given the horse that they happen to be sitting on and given their own ability. So somehow or other, you have to explain to them how it takes a long time to actually master the techniques that are involved in this particular sport. And although it's a fantastic sport in terms of teaching people to deal with the ups and downs of life and life experience, you have to be very careful that their expectations as I say, don't Mm. exceed their ability or their experience. And I find that it used to be easier when the children who came to you came from parents who also rode. Mm -hmm. But now a lot of the children that come for lessons actually don't have parents who've had that experience. And so if they talk to other parents and start saying, oh, is your child doing X or Y or Z? Is your child jumping through to, for instance, a metre five? Oh, my child's only jumping 60 centimetres. Mm, mm. Well, then the parent who's the child's jumping 60 centimetres can't wait till the child is jumping a metre five, mm. despite the fact that maybe the child that's jumping 60 centimetres safely on a course that probably shouldn't be jumping more than 80 centimetres mm, <laughs> in terms mm. of its ability. Yes. But I find that I'm not one of those people that say the parents should be separate from the children and go away and don't say anything and stay away from me while I teach a child. I use exactly the opposite technique. I say to the parents, you've got to be very involved in this. You've got to understand why I'm saying what I'm saying, when I'm saying it, 
Mm-hmm. And you've got to understand what are the dangers for your child and what we're trying to do to make sure that your child doesn't come to grief. And I spend a lot of time with parents and I encourage parents to be involved as much as I possibly can. And the parents who want to just drop their children off, go and have a cup of coffee and come back and pick them up, don't stay with me very long. Mm-hmm. It's funny because we talk about, you know, kids that age being under peer pressure but it's almost like the parents are under a bit of peer pressure. You've got to be quite tactful with them. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely you have to be tactful. But I find it's easy to be tactful as long as they understand. And if you give them the opportunity to understand, I think the thing is that sometimes it's not always, you know, you're trying so hard to give a good lesson to the child that you forget the parent. And I find it it's much more demanding in terms of your time and effort to be teaching a child and including the parent. Yeah, it's education for the parents. You've got to not only teach the child, but also educate the parents. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's hard, but I think that it's, you know, it is the challenge and it's a challenge I enjoy. And mostly I find that as long as, I mean, there's the odd parent that, you know, you just don't manage to engage, but... Mostly I find that you do manage to engage parents and you do manage to create a relationship between parent and the child where the parent can actually be encouraging and supportive and when there are disappointments, as there inevitably are, I mean, horses are the greatest levelers. I don't think anybody oh, ever disagree sure. about mm, that. Mm. And so, you know, in teaching both children and parents about life's disappointments, There are many opportunities, and if you teach them to be resilient in that regard, I think you actually do them a favour, not only in terms of their equestrian experiences, but for life. Mm, mm, mm. Oh, just let me interrupt you for a moment, just to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at Online Horse College. Have a look at the flexible options with online theory. The practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. All right, I want you to take off your coach's cap now and put on your coach educator cap. And I want you to think about coaches who are just starting. You know, they're just starting. They've come to you. They're not qualified. They've come to you for some education. What do you think Mm. is a common problem for beginner instructors And how do we fix it? I think the biggest problem for beginner instructors, whether they're experienced riders or whether they're people who just think that it would be nice to do a bit of coaching, Mm -hmm. I think the biggest problem is to get them to appreciate the fact that they have to engage with the rider and everybody associated with the rider that comes to them. You can teach anybody to see stuff that is to do with, you know, how you're sitting on a horse, how you handle a horse. You can teach that. That's easy. But the difficulty is to teach them to relate to the rider and the situation and the horse in order that they actually encompass the whole thing. So they encompass the relationship between the rider and the horse and whoever is supporting the rider, if there is somebody, that person too. It's the whole thing that they take on and you can't teach or coach effectively if you, well, 
you can, you can teach and you can do stuff like saying, you know, change this or change that or you need to do this or you need to do that. But that's not really teaching and coaching. Coaching at its most important is the relationship that you develop and the ability within that relationship that you have to be honest but to be encouraging. Mm -hmm. And I think that the trouble about a lot of equestrian teaching is that it goes back to the old military thing, you know, your hands and your heels keep down, all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. Yes. It's actually not to do with that. Mm. That is the sort of military way of teaching it. But unfortunately, for some people, that is what you hear being screeched at people. And people, there are some people who seem to actually like that, but I don't feel that that's the most effective way of coaching. And so what I try to teach people right from the word go is to have sympathy and understanding with the person, whoever you're teaching, and to understand where they're coming from, what their expectations are. Now, sometimes you get people whose expectations are ridiculously low and you get other people whose expectations are ridiculously high. Now, you can't just attack that straight up. That's a long journey for both of those extremes. But you have to be prepared to encompass that and it creates great relationships when you do it well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to just say, oh, I'm not winning here and and (laughs) Mm. this relationship is not going to work. Mm. And then they need to go to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that, I mean, I am not, the sort of person who advocates that people stay with one coach forever and ever. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that people can hop from coach to coach because I think particularly in the early stages of coaching, you need some sort of continuity. So I tell my coaches that come to me for introductory, I ask them who they think the people are that they're going to teach. And then I spend quite a lot of time talking to them about how they think they're going to continue to relate to those people. Mm Mm-hmm. And if they come to me as experienced riders and they want to be fast-tracked through the system, I say that's fine, but I spend a lot of time talking to them about how they're going to relate to the people at various levels that are going to come to see them. Because I think that the reputation of our coaching depends on the capacity of our coaches to inspire, support and make safe our riders of the future. That's basically where I think it is. Mm -hmm. I think that was very well explained, yeah. Moving on, Judy, have you got a book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners? Well, it depends at what level you're you're asking for your listeners. There are books and books. Where do you want me to start? (laughs) What what about you you talk about a book that you've learned a lot from, you know, that's helped you because, you know, you've started off as a as a three-year-old going through the pine forests and finding an old pony and riding and being lucky enough, you know, as a young rider with Carl yeah. Urinac yeah. and Franz. Um, but it's a book that might have influenced you throughout your journey that we can recommend. My goodness. I'm just standing in front <laughs> of my bookshelf looking at four shelves of horse books and thinking if there's one that is particularly um, see, I've just sort of... That's your journalist background coming out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that there's, there's not one book. Yep. There are books at various stages mm-hmm. that have inspired me. I particularly like Kira Kirkland's Dressage. Yes. 
I particularly find that really good. But having said that, I also read De Carpentry, Klaus Beckenau. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And for jumping, I think that it's very hard to go past George Morris. Oh, yeah. I think that George Morris and his books are an inspiration in terms of dumping. And the great thing is he's got a system that is really simple mm-hmm. if you follow it. Yep. And I find that whether you're teaching beginner riders over their first jump or whether you're teaching people who want to go on and be show jumpers of distinction or event riders of distinction a lot of the George Morris stuff is excellent. In terms of eventing, oh my goodness, there's just so many books in terms of eventing. Lucinda's excellent, but now in terms of in terms of what you need for eventing, you'd need much more technical stuff. And there's again, there's just so many books on eventing. So I can't tell you. You know what? What I might be able to do, Judy, if it's okay with you, would you like to send me just have a bit of a think? And uh, if you can give me a book list, and what we'll do is we'll put it on your page at horsechats.com/slash Judy Fasher. And then that way, that'll give you a few moments to digest it, to think, to pull out what the ones that you're thinking about. But it also then I can give people a list of the books that you recommend. Does that sound all right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, I think that'll that'll be good because I've sort of put you in a situation where you're going, wow, all these books, I've got <laughs> all these shelves and shelves of books and which ones do I say? Yeah. Well, I think that people, you can overdo it, can't you, with people. I mean, I think that... Well, how many years has it taken you to accumulate all those books? You know, that's, yeah. <laughs> 30 years. Yes, yes. <laughs> So, so it's 30, 30 years of reading, basically. Mm, mm. So I think that you'd need to say that. So it's not it's not the books that actually inform the intro coach. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking about that mm. because the ones that are recommended for intro coaches are the ones. But I think that, uh, you know, I read the Carpentry, I read Kira Kirkland, I read in terms of, in terms of eventing, yeah. Pippa Funnel, William Fox Pip, um, you know, I read those people. But they're a good compliment, aren't they? You know, they're just a good compliment yeah. to writing. It gives you a different perspective. It, Yeah, it's just something that you can do on a rainy day, you, can, you know. it's Watch your, watch your video, yeah. watch your horse video, read a horse book, and it gives you yeah. in, increased learning. And while it's not going to replace your hours in the saddle and your lessons and everything else, the books are a good complement to your knowledge. They are, and then they're nice to take to bed when you're feeling frustrated and trying to sort out a problem with a particular horse. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay, okay. What, what I'd I like. Hope I've been oh. <laughs> okay. All right. So we'll, we'll do that. Now, if you can sum up your philosophy into a lesson today. So just something that people can have as a takeaway, if you want to sum it up, something they can think about as they go through their day. Sum up my philosophy in terms of horses? Yeah. Listen to them, watch them, and understand them. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. Yeah, well, we started off with go slowly, be kind, form a partnership with your horse. So (laughs) that's been the thread all the way through. Um, That's really good. Yes. 
Yeah. Judy, how can people contact you? Oh, I'll just give them my phone number. Okay. I'll put that on the page as well. That'll be at horsechats.com slash Judy Fasher. Judy, it's been great talking to you today. There's been okay. a, a lot of guidance for people here, a lot of training. I think they can go away. We'll get your book list. That will give people more, you know, another compliment to their writing. And I <laughs> think that would be that would be very good. All right. Well, it's been lovely talking to you and hope to talk to you again sometime. Okay. Thank, thanks, thanks, Judy. Bye-bye. 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 If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.